through Hosea chapter 10. Um, and we're going to work to finish this chapter this morning. Now, uh, before we get started, I just have one announcement. February 12th, uh, the Gideons are going to be here. Uh, do like they normally do. It'll be a relatively short presentation, I'm sure. Um, I'd consider not having them come. I decided that's probably that it's probably something that we do want to have um, for multitude of reasons, but uh, just be aware that's happening on the 12th. And uh, we finished Sunday school this morning, so we're going to have no Sunday school for a period of time, maybe a month off or so, and we'll sort of come up with the next thing uh, as that becomes necessary. So just so we're aware there. Um, yeah. You guys have the workbooks. If you have missed any weeks or if you want to engage with that further, uh, by all means, go ahead and finish that out. All right, Hosea, uh, chapter 10. Last week, we looked at verse 1. This morning, as I said, we're going to try to finish this book. Um, last week, we studied, in some respects, the goal of our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ, um, to be faithful worshipers, that we would be those who would purpose to serve him first and to serve him foremost above all else. And we seek his kingdom and glory far above our own or that of any other kingdom. That's so what we're dedicated. As a result of that, we're dedicated to his will and to his ways. Now, unfortunately, this is not the goal of a lot of Christians as we talked about. This is, this is introduction from a few weeks ago. Hold on. Pause. I, I threw all of the notes for this chapter in one slide. So uh, I, I apologize. <laughs> but that is kind of what we talked about two weeks ago. Uh, but as we get into the remainder of this chapter, into of chapter 10, um, I want to I begin by looking at the last verse. And I sort of want to introduce it because the, what the last verse does for us is it gives us a clear idea of, that this is something that God is doing. So let's read verse 15. He says, so shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In the morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. I want to focus on that first phrase, so shall Bethel do unto you. The, the word Bethel means house of God. That's what it means. And so as we study through and we look at, uh, as we progress, we see that here, this is something God is doing. That everything that is about to happen, that we're about to look at this morning, and everything that we've read up to this point through this study is something that God is, in fact, doing. We're going to look at, in some respects this morning, the why He's doing it. And we've talked about that in the past, but I think there's some new takeaways, some new application for us this morning. So here, God is doing something. It isn't circumstances that are somehow colliding coincidentally. Everything's sort of coming together not a coalescence of the universe to bring to pass something. No, this is something that the sovereign creator of the universe is doing. He is moving to redeem his people from their depravity. That is what he is engaged in. His love is expressed in his redemption of Israel's hardships to instruct them for their need for him, to call them to repentance. We'll remember that Hosea is God's almost sort of last ditch effort. This is the last prophet I'm going to send to you before I send the Assyrians to bring you into captivity. The last turn, repent, stop this idolatry. And that's exactly where they're at. They're worshiping these false gods. 
They're engaged in other things. They've established all kinds of things that are above or equal to God himself in their life. And that's what they're serving. So here God is doing something, and we're going to look at that motive this morning. So let's begin in verse 2. He says, their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. That word divided heart, in this context, it means slick. It's smooth. Now, I watched the video series. I'm not a foodie, but I am a YouTube junkie, and I'm working on that, okay? But I watched this series. This guy was making pasta. I did not realize that pasta should be rough, so the sauce sticks to it. I mean, all I ever know is what I bought at the store. Rough pasta is better. Your sauce sticks to it. There's some something dependable there. Here we have, and I'm using that as an illustration of their smooth hearts. There's no stick to itness in the hearts of Israel. They have easily sloughed off the things that God has called them to. Their heart is slick. It's divided. We encounter that in the New Testament as well, that, that a man whose heart is divided, the book of James, is unstable in all of his ways. He has part of his heart over here and part of his heart over here. There's no stick to itness. So here's the kingdom of Israel, and they're divided. At, the, at best, we're trying to serve God and our idols. And ultimately, we're going to find that there's really no division in reality. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Turn with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 17. Second Kings 17, I want to begin here in verse 32. You have to get to Second Kings before you can find verse 32. There it is. Second Kings 17, verse 32. It says, So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. Now, I want to pause here, right? We understand this is... Um, The king of Assyria here at this point has taken Israel captive, and he's uh, because the people that he sent in to occupy Israel, because they're all captive in Assyria, are struggling. And so they send in some priests. They send in some people, some Jews, to say, this is how you worship the God of this land. So Assyria is wholly committed to idolatry, and they're going to serve whatever gods seem successful to them, which is no different than what Israel is doing. But what they do here is it says they served, they feared the Lord, and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places. So they're taking the people who are not qualified to be priests because, according to God's word, there's only one tribe that can do that, the, the Levites. They're supposed to be the priests. But we're going to put whoever we can in that position. You know who else put the people of the lowest places in positions of authority? Jeroboam. Jeroboam I, the guy who said, listen, I'm going to be the king of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and to keep people under our thumb, we're going to create our own religion. Same thing is happening here. So, they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest, and they worshiped in the high places. Now, that's not a reference to the temple. It's not a reference to anything to do with God. That's a reference to the places of idolatry that they've established. So, they, quote-unquote, fear the Lord. 
but they're going to serve idols as well. Verse 33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods. Just in case there was any confusion, let's make it very clear. They served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from there. Right? We remember when Israel comes in, there's all these nations in the book of Joshua. They defeat all these nations for the most part. They don't quite finish the job. And now they're serving those very gods, which God had told them not to do, specifically commanded them not to do. Jump with me down to verse 41, the last verse. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. So we have this divided heart. There's no stick to itness. They're not doing anything that is that is completely devoted to the Lord. Remember, if we're worshipers, everything that we do is to serve Him, to honor Him. Yet here they are, and why are they serving Him and all these other gods? So they might reap the best that they can reap. That is the purpose. That's why we sent these guys in, so that we might learn how to be successful, how we worship the idols of this land, and be, and be blessed. That's their purpose. All of that somewhat sounds familiar because we encounter it within Christian circles. How do I worship God so that I might be blessed? Not how do I serve God because this is what he has done for me. Not how do I lay down my life for him and be that living sacrifice because he was willing to lay down everything on my behalf. There is blessing associated with service to the Lord. That isn't the motive, but that's their motive here. Now, as I said, there's no really division in reality. Apart from their repentance, apart from their turning from their idolatry and serving God wholly, what this leads to is a rejection of God. Okay. Now, we talked about in, in the past, we talked about as we witness, if we come and we're witnessing to somebody that has a different religious background than we do, the danger is that they syncretize or they mix the two together. The example that we've heard, we remember from the past is it's like soup. We take religion here, we dump it in, we take some religion, some seasoning from this religion, we dump it in the soup, and all of a sudden we have this perverted gospel. It's not really truth any longer. We're not worshiping the true and living God. It's exactly what they've done here. They've syncretized, they've mixed everything together. And what does that lead to? It leads to a rejection of God. I'm not serving him any longer. I'm serving this concoction that I've made. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Let's read verse 24. Matthew 6, verse 24. Jesus himself is speaking here, and this is what he says. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There is not a divided heart here. You're either for God or you're against God. That's the point that Jesus is making. You're going to serve him or you're not going to serve him. You're not going to sort of serve him. To put anything else on the same level, or, or to engage in idolatry in any way, shape, or form is not serving God. In James chapter 4, verse 4, 
He says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Now, that should sound familiar because that's how God is dealing with, that's how he's talking about Israel in the first few chapters of Hosea. I've been faithful to you. I've been this husband. I've provided, yet you have rejected me. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity or to be an enemy of God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So if we grab onto, if we espouse, if we try to mix anything, we're an enemy of God. So here is Israel. They're not, though they may say in, in name that we're serving God, they're not serving God. You can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. And the same is true for you and I. We can't syncretize. We can't mix. We can't take our own thoughts and ideas and say, well, I don't like that portion of Scripture. Here's what God has revealed, and, and this is truth, but I don't like it or I don't care for it. I don't like the ramifications of it. Therefore, I'm going to reject that part and hold on to just the things that I like. It's truth because it's truth. When I talk about the unpleasant truths of Scripture, and I talked about in the past how I have to change my thinking about that, because if God has said it, it is good in its totality, even if that means some hard things. So I have to understand that and I have to think about it the way that God thinks about it. I have to change my mind. I have to repent from my wrong thinking. Now, that might be some of you. We might also have those things as we've, as we've talked about and as the Lord has been gracious to show us things that maybe we've elevated to an inappropriate status. We're either serving that or we're serving God. We want to have hearts that are firmly rooted, that aren't slick. Now, God isn't going to share his glory, and his, his glory isn't going to be marred by the unfaithfulness of Israel. I want to give you an example. You remember when the nation of Israel, they, they were facing the Philistines, and the ark was captured. And they take the ark, the Philistines take the ark, and they put it in the temple of Dagon. They're, they're, they're false god. First Samuel chapter 5, if you want to write that down, that's what we read about this. And what happens to Dagon? Well, they come in the next morning and he's fallen over. Their statue has fallen over. Why? God's not going to share his glory. There is one God, none else. So they stand him back up and they come in the next day. And not only has Dagon fallen over, but he's broken to pieces. Because there is no, and here's the ark of God. This is where his presence would dwell with his people. God was making it very clear to the Philistines and to you and I that there is no second fiddle with him. He's not going to share his glory. And ultimately, as you continue to read through the story, as the Philistines tried to mix, syncretize the God of Israel with their pagan worship, they reaped some really hard times in regard to that. After their idol is destroyed. God also struck the Philistines with emeralds or, or with tumors. I mean, people are starting to get tumors in the town where this is all happening. Ultimately, what they realize is, listen, we have to get rid of this thing. This is judgment from God. And he's obviously a living God. He must be a true God. There is some power here above and beyond anything that we've ever encountered. So they put it on an ark, excuse me, they put it on a cart and they yoked it to some oxen and they got drugged without anybody guiding it back into Israel. That's not going to share his glory. 
We're all in or we're all out. We're not going to mix anything with it. We have to take all of the truth with the revealed truth. It doesn't, we don't get to pick and choose. Now, the root of the condition for the nation of Israel here, the kingdom of Israel, we find in verse 3, he says, For they, now they shall say, we have no king. Because we feared not the Lord, what then should a king do to us? Now, this is a revelation of the object of where their faith lies. And their faith ultimately lies in something outside of God. Their faith lies in everything that they can taste, touch, and feel, in their military might, in the allegiances that they're making. Look at verse 13 down toward the end there. He says, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you didn't trust in thy way, thy way in the, excuse me, because you did trust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. And if you go back and you read through 2 Kings and you, and you read through Chronicles, what we find is that as the nation of Assyria, this judgment that is being promised here, as that begins to take fruit, and that's what's happening in this very scene, the king of Israel goes and starts to make these allegiances. And he says, listen, the Assyrians are coming against us, so I'm going to sneak over here. I'm going to make this pact, this allegiance with Egypt. Because they have a stronger army. So they're trusting in their politics. They're trusting in their ability to scheme and connive. They're trusting in the might of their armies. But God says, now they shall say, what is the root of this? Now thou shalt say, we have no king. In other words, we don't need the authority of God. We are going to take care of this ourselves. Because we feared not the Lord. There's no reverence for God within them. There's a rejection of God's word. In Romans 13, verse 1, it talks about there being no power other than those that God has established. So we have this understanding from the very beginning that God who created everything by his spoken word, the sovereign or the king, the ruler of all of creation, establishes the authorities that exist in the world today and always has. And he may use them for his glory. He's in the business of redemption, but he's orchestrated all of history to bring about those things that needed to be brought about. And he recorded all the things that we needed to know in his word. So here it is. We have rejected that. We, we don't need God. Not only that, but in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, as uh, Jacob is blessing his sons, he blesses Judah, and he says, listen, in this prophetic utterance, there's going to be this king that comes from you. Now, there had been no discussion about any kings as of yet. But here it is, and we know that Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of that. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the king that was being referenced there. So there's this looking forward to. But Israel says, we don't need a king. We don't need God's authority. We don't need those things that he has established. In other words, we don't need his word or the truth that he's given. We'll deal with it ourselves. We'll trust in something else. Ultimately, this leads to the removal of that particular idol completely. It's gone. Uh, look at with me in verse 7. He says, as for Samaria, and that's their capital city in the, in the kingdom of Israel, as for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. How hard is it to take the scum off the water? 
It takes little to no effort at all, does it? I can blow it away. As simple as that is for you and I, that's how simple it is for God to remove that king from that role that he's established them in. We studied through this in pretty good depth when we went through Romans. We looked at the authority that God establishes that he picks up and that he puts down, that he establishes kings and he takes them down. All of this to accomplish his purpose and will. Here, the other thing for us to understand is that the people had sought a king. Right? When, when Saul became the first king of the nation of Israel before it was divided, they wanted a king. And God allowed it. And he told Samuel, if you'll remember in Samuel chapter 8, he said, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. But ultimately, in fact, turn there with me. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8. Because here we have this army coming in. Here we have them going into captivity. Here we have them, and, and we find this complete and utter lack of ability for the king to do anything. I realize that it's somewhat prophetic, but in Psalm chapter 2, you remember, why do the heathen rage, and why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings and the rulers of the earth, they, they assemble themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what does it say? But the Lord God will have them in derision. He will call, <laughs> they'll be so confused, nothing will get done. There is nothing that can stop his plan and purpose from coming to be. So here in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, Verse 7, for example, the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, for they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And we look into verse 19 and 20, for example, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, so that we can be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Who's fighting this battle now? Obviously not their king. And everything that he could do and every scheme that he could plot and every mechanism of negotiation and political might that he could muster, nothing could stand against the Lord. As it says there in the end of verse 3, what then should the king or what could he do to us? Nothing. He couldn't fight those battles. He couldn't protect him. He could do none of those things that God himself could do. They've rejected God completely. So we look at Israel's faithlessness towards God, and we find that it's manifest in their false allegiances. Now, in 2 Kings 17.4, that's where we have this discussion about the king of Israel making this alliance with the king of with, with Egypt. And ultimately, the king of Assyria finds out about it. And all of that is what prompts the Assyrian descent upon Israel. God was going to do this no matter what happened, but this is the mechanism that he used. He redeemed even their unfaithfulness as a mechanism of correction. We're going to find that here in a moment. In 2 Kings, though, more importantly than 1 Kings, 2 Kings, not that the book itself is more important, but this reference happens to be more important. 
2 Kings 18. If you'll turn there with me. 2 Kings 18, verses 11 and 12. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in Halah and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the city of, cities of the Medes. So here they are. They've gone into captivity. We're, from where we're reading Hosea, we're looking into the future. This is what's going to happen. And this is what he says in verse 12. This is the why. This is the root cause. Because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses and Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded and would not hear them nor do them. Israel is reaping what they've sown. And ultimately, though they may have made military allegiances and then all, all of those kinds of things, and the fruit of their unfaithfulness is seen in their, uh, as it says here in verse 4, their false swearing, where they make these commitments. They, they've committed to serve Assyria, yet they're scheming with Egypt. Ultimately, the false swearing that brings them into this condemnation is their false swearing to the Lord. You remember that in Exodus 19, all the people get together. God says, here's the covenant that we're going to make. I'm going to give you my laws. And if you keep them and you obey them, then I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And if you don't, then you're not going to be my people. And what have we found here in the book of Hosea? God says, you're not my people. Because they're not walking in obedience. You're either for God or you're against God. And the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel at this point is against God. They're seeking all of these other things. Now, their misplaced faith, he says in verse 4, they have spoken words. They've sworn falsely in making a covenant. This judgment springs up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. Okay? Israel's arrogance and their misplaced faith, their trust in these armies, their trust in all of these things that they can touch and feel, means that the judgment that is coming surprises them. Like hemlock growing up in their furrows. How many of you have ever experienced this, where you go out, maybe you till your garden, but you get some soil ready, and you come back the next day, and what has grown up? Overnight, weeds. Things that you didn't plant and that you didn't want there have sprung up faster than you could even sow the seed that you do want. That's what's being referenced here, hemlock. Now, the word hemlock in the Hebrew, it literally means poison. So we have these poison things popping up, they're reaping hardship. The only thing left for them to reap, the only thing that God is going to allow them to reap or to harvest is the destruction that he's promised them. And there's a reason for that. Verse 14, he says, Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled. All those things they put confidence in, all that military might, it's gone, it's spoiled. And Shalman, or one of the kings of Assyria, spoiled Beth Arbel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. There is no competition, in other words. He completely annihilated the city. And just with that same amount of ease, he's going to come in, he's going to take Israel. They have these puny gods, these, <laughs> these little idols. Verses 5 through 8, he says, the inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth Haven. For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof have rejoiced on it for the glory thereof, because 
it is departed from it. It shall also be carried unto Assyria for a present to King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. The high place is also of Avon. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come upon their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. I want you to notice a few things. That if you remember, when they put those golden calves in Dan and in Bethel, that's where they placed them. If we go back to 1 Kings and we see where Jeroboam put those, he references that place here. He calls it Beth Haven instead of Bethel. No longer is it the house of God. It's Beth Haven, the house of iniquity. That's what that means. God refers to it. This is the day. And he chooses Beth El, that, that one in particular, because that's where, if we read, and, and I might be getting ahead of myself, we might get there, but in the book of Amos, who is a contemporary prophet also to the kingdom of Israel at the same time as Hosea saying the same things to the same people. There's a reference in chapter seven where he says, listen, this Beth Abel, Beth Haven, that that's where, or Bethel, that's the calf that the king would worship. That's the, that's the idol that he went to. That's the royal house of iniquity. So God references that one, but it's really a reference to the whole idolatry of the people. And he uses that to sum it up. So here it is, the house of iniquity. Now, when we talk about this shame that they said in verse 6, Israel, Ephraim shall receive shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. That shame, the, the words there literally mean that there is a realization of their offense. They're going to realize what's happened. They're going to realize that this is the judgment of God. They're going to realize that we have been living in sinfulness as enemies of God and not his people. Now, I say that there's a dual fulfillment. There's two things happening here. Because Israel still exists in that state. They're willing to suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they don't want to deal with Jesus Christ. So there is this fulfillment coming in the future. Now, turn to Revelation. Revelation, verse 6. Because as we read through, we see this uh, utterance in verse 8. He says, cover us and the hills fall on us. So here we have all the places being removed. Uh, Avon, that iniquity being removed everyone being judged, the, the idols and those things being taken down. No longer are they able to worship their idols. No longer are they able to worship God. As we looked at in the last chapter, their ability to worship is removed. Their gods are taken captive. Their spoils of war, these golden calves have been placed up. Their spoils of war, they're absolute, and, and they're they're distraught because of the absolute inability of these golden statues to deliver them. What kind of a God can be looted? Only an impotent, powerless, and lifeless one. In 2 Kings chapter 18, if you want to just write it down, you have Assyria, this representative of Assyria, coming into Judah, into the southern tribe, into that kingdom, 
And he says, listen, none of these gods have been able to spare anybody. We were in Israel just a little while ago, and we took that place captive. None of their gods, and the inference is even your God, was able to deliver them. Their puny gods, the gods of all these nations that we've taken captive, were unable to deliver them. And he uses that as an example to threaten Judah to the point that Israel, uh, Judah capitulates. They say, well, listen, whatever, we'll, we'll pay you tribute. Israel has yet to repent. They continue to trust in religion and not in Jesus. In Revelation 6.16, if you return there, it says, And to, they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Obviously, this is talking about God's judgment. And ultimately, he's talking about God's judgment on the people, on his enemies, those people that are, that are not following him. But their cry is this, that the rocks would fall, and that anything and everything that could would hide them from the very judgment of God. It's substantial. We talk about the judgment of God and almost comes to the point where it's frivolous, and we look at it and we understand it, uh, at least culturally, as something small. And if we do, and if we look at a God as something that, that, that is a genie in the lamp, that it's just going to rub it and we get what we want, we're, we're serving him for the blessing, then ultimately the judgment of God is not receiving the blessing. It isn't that bad. When we talk about the judgment of God, it's severe, and it's potentially, apart from Jesus Christ, it's eternal. I mean, the predetermined destiny for everybody who is apart from Christ, as hard as it is, the truth is that it's hell. That is where they're destined, and it's, uh, it's sad that people would reject it. But if they live to the point of Jesus' return and all these things that we're reading about here in Revelation happening, there's a period of time looking forward to where the nation of Israel will continue to reject him, and they will say, as part of the enemies of God, fall on us, stones fall on us, mountains cover us, because the wrath of God is so severe. And as we look in Scripture and we see the, very, the, the truth that God has revealed, that here is hell, Hades, as it's referred to, and what happens to Hades at the end of time when everything is made new, well, that's dumped into the lake of fire. Ultimately, hell is bad, and then it gets worse. It is a judgment. It is harsh. It is severe. Their gods are unable to deliver them from the judgment of God from the severity of his wrath. Now, despite the truth being firmly revealed, the nation of it, because he's powerless, the nation of Israel mourns their idol. They, they mourn that this calf, this golden statue, has gone into captivity with them. This is the deception, and this is the deceptive nature of religion. That we would mourn the, those, those things. And so what happens is, even though the truth is clearly revealed, they're rejecting of it. For you and I, the way that we combat this, when we engage, we engage with people who are sincerely deceived all the time. We have to combat it with truth. We have to confront them. 
The truth will set you free, is what Jesus said. His word is truth. That is the tool, that is the mechanism that we interact with them about. This is how we reach them. We reach them with the word of God. It's really simple. It demands of you and I that we would know it. It demands of you and I that we would live it to the best of our ability by God's grace. And that when we fail, when we stumble, and inevitably we will, that we see forgiveness, that we repent before the Lord, and that we, hey, that was a drastic misrepresentation. That was wrong of me, and I'm going to confess that that was wrong, so that you don't have the wrong idea about what God has revealed in Scripture. That's humbling, but it's a consistent picture to the world around us. We have these false priests, whether in Israel's day and Hosea's day, or today, that will suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We read about them, and we read about people who would be subject to that in Romans 1.18. They may know the truth. They may be encountered with it. They, they may be equipping people to, quote-unquote, overcome it and combat it. Why? Because it keeps them in power. Because it keeps them in the position that they've held to. That's exactly why Israel was doing it. The other reason is that they may have be simply be deceived. They're sincere. They've never encountered truth. Or at least convincingly. Here's, the, here's Israel saying that we are, we are the servants of God. We're going to serve him and we're going to serve these other gods. Why would anybody that we would share the gospel with today, why would they say, listen, I shouldn't mix what I believe with what you believe? Why would they see a difference? Now, we understand there's a difference. Galatians tells us that though we or an angel of light share unto you any other gospel than that which has been preached, let that person be accursed. There is a difference. There's a drastic difference. And what I'm saying is that when we confront them with truth, we have to confront them with the difference. Now, don't get sucked into the argument about uh, all kinds. <laughs> there's all kinds of things we might get sucked into. We're not there to win an argument. We're there to share truth. We're not there trying to disprove their religion. We're sharing truth. Nation of Israel, they had hard hearts. He says in verses 9 and 10, O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. Now, Gibeah, we read about it first. We encounter it there in the book of Judges. Right, The book of Judges, this is God. He's reigning. He's the one who's over them. The book of Judges, the word judge simply means deliverer. They would fall to sin. God would use other nations and other things to correct them. And then he would send a deliverer to deliver them out of the hands of those corrective instruments. That's the story over and over and over in the book of Judges. When we read about, well, let's finish here, verse 10. It is my desire that I should chase, chastise them and the people should be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. God says, listen, you have been sinful since the days of Gibeah, he says, there they stood. In other words, this is where they've continued. 
they've continued. Now, I'll just tell you that the, if you go read in Judges 19 through 21, where you read about Gibeah, you read about what was happening there, it is hard stuff. It's not easy. I would say, listen, if you want to have that, we're not covering it in detail today because it's something you probably should talk about with your kids when it's appropriate. It's substantial. But what I want to talk about is the root cause of what's happening there. So let's look in Judges 19 and let's read verse 22 because everything that's happening there is the fruit of what they're allowing. It's the coming out, it's the outward expression of where their heart really lies. In verse 22 of Judges chapter 19, we have some, some look into their hearts, so to speak. It says, now as they, were make, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial. Now, sons of Belial, that means worshipers of Baal. These guys are not worshipers of God. They're there. They exist, and it's condoned. In other words, it's overlooked. It's allowed. Not only that, but if you continue to read through here, not only is it accepted, but it ends up being protected. Interesting that you would have an entire community, an entire tribe of Israel that would protect godless worship. It sounds like modern news, doesn't it? That we would have an entire segments of, of, of our society, that we would have entire churches even, denominations protecting godless lifestyle, godless sinfulness. There's nothing new under the sun. But that's what's happening here. The root of this is, is found here in verse 22. These sons of Belial, these, they beset the house, they surrounded the house, and they beat at the door, and they spake to the master. Right. The, ultimately, that's the reason that there is idolatry happening. They're, they're not, there's this division of heart, this slickness of heart again. And either you're serving God or you're serving something else. And if they're willing to protect it, they're clearly serving something else. To be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. And that's where the tribe of Benjamin stands right here. Because they're about to defend this. They're about to go to civil war to defend these idolaters and the heinous acts that they're about to commit. That's exactly what happens. This is where Israel stands. God's accusation of Israel is that you stand in the same kinds of sin, that your heart is rooted in the same cause of this sinfulness and this idolatry, and what flows out of it is all of this depravity, all of this sin. Now, we haven't covered all of it in great detail, nor do we need to necessarily cover it all in great detail. Right? There's all kinds of things that have been instituted as quote-unquote worship in Israel. And it's pretty depraved. That's God's accusation. And he says, even to this day, that's what's happening here in Israel right there. Any of us who would seek to mix these things, we're going to serve one or the other. They have these hard hearts. He says in verse 10, it is my desire that I should chastise them, that he would correct them. We look at God's desire. What is he doing? Here he is. He's about to send his people into captivity. And the purpose, the reason that he wants to do that is to correct them. That's what chastise means, to correct them. 
There's hard stuff happening. The nation of Israel needs correction. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12 for just a moment. I think this is another area where there is dual fulfillment of these prophecies. It's going to happen in Hosea's day. They are going to go into captivity. But the reason I say that there is dual fulfillment is because Israel has yet to receive Christ as their Messiah. They have yet to acknowledge who he is and what God has done for them in that provision. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, he says, and and all of chapter 12, we kind of looked at this when we studied through Daniel. Chapter 12 is identifying figuratively, using metaphor, we have this dragon who is Satan, and it's clearly stated in this chapter. We looked as we studied through Daniel, we see these creatures, we see, we identified one of them as being Satan as a consistent picture throughout scripture. Not only that, but we have uh, this woman who brings forth a man-child to rule all nations. Okay, that's Israel. That's representative of God's people. That child that was born is Jesus Christ. So this is talking about Israel. This is something yet to happen. So there is future fulfillment yet in what is being described in Hosea in verses 13 through 17. And the, when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. So here Satan is going to specifically persecute Israel. Okay? That's what's going to happen. He continues on, and the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness in her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. So Israel is going to be delivered. She's going to be protected for this period of time, times, times and a half a time. However you want to interpret that, we're not going to be dogmatic about it this morning. That's what's going to happen. Israel is going to be specifically persecuted by Satan, probably through his the Antichrist, but nonetheless, all of that being the same, it's not exactly the same, but for sake of this morning, Israel is going to be specially delivered. Right? God isn't finished with Israel. There are those that he is trying to bring back to himself. So he delivers them specifically. He goes on, verse 15, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood unto the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Now, I want to use positive. That's not, the dragon isn't literally spewing out a flood. This is all, this is metaphor. This is simile. We'll remember from our study in Daniel that we have all of these nations that align themselves with Satan, with the Antichrist. There is one government. There is one ruler of all of this. So what happens here, this is a reference to all of these nations coming against Israel. Israel, God's people, is going to stand alone. And it says, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. All I can say is that God's done this before, and he's going to do it again. You remember that there were those two that said, listen, we can be priests too, and they are burning the strange fire. And God said, listen, Israel, stand back. I'm going to do a new thing. And that always gets me. I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to, guys, I'm going to try something here that I really want you to watch. So pay attention. And he opens up the earth, and these guys and their families are swallowed up by the earth. They're no, okay, your claim to priesthood is gone by God's hand at that point. You're done. <laughs> but he's going to do it again here with all of these armies that are coming against Israel. He's going to open up, he's going to do whatever. The earth is going to swallow them up. Whatever that looks like, I don't know exactly, but 
It's not unprecedented. And would it be impossible for an omnipotent God? Absolutely not. Verse 17, and the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Something happens with Israel. Did you notice that? They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is believing Israel. That hasn't happened yet. So when I read here in the book of Hosea and I talk about this dual fulfillment, yes, they are taken into captivity, but there is this other judgment that is coming, this other coming of nations against them. And, and, and this looking forward to it, and we read about it here in Revelation. We see a reference to some degree in Hosea. One day, while Assyria is God's instrument of correction and chastisement here, one day, all of these nations are going to come against Israel as an instrument of chastisement, as an instrument to bring them back to himself, to say, listen, you'll remember that as Israel was dealt with by God throughout the past, and he would miraculously deliver them from Egypt, for example, they were quick to follow the flame by day and the pillar of cloud by night. Why? Because they had seen the miraculous hand of deliverance. They'd seen what he had done. His redemptive act caused them to believe. And as we look through scripture, that's always sort of the purpose of miracles, to confirm what is happening. So here is Israel being persecuted by all these nations. God miraculously delivers them. I don't know what it means for them to have wings, for, the, for Israel to be given wings and taken out of the wilderness. But it's a deliverance. Whatever it looks like. Whether you have a float, flotilla, planes don't float, so to speak, but you have a bunch of planes coming and they fly. They're going to fly. I think, that's, I think that is a literal reference. I could be wrong. We're just going to have to wait and see. But they're delivered. Maybe they grow wings. Maybe they fly literally. I don't know. I don't think it's literal. Okay, one way or the other. We look at that, what happens? There is a turning apart with Israel. Now, whether there's an acknowledgement of Jesus Christ, there is a desire, we're going to keep the commandments of God. Something different than we encounter in Israel's history since their captivities, whether in Assyria or Judah and Babylon. Since then, we haven't found this. You remember that in John chapter 19, when Jesus is taken before Pilate, and he says, listen, you want me to kill the king of the Jews? And what do the religious leaders of the day, what are the elite in the ruling class in Israel, what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. We reject the king that you have sent us. Just like they read about here in Hosea. We reject that. We're, 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 not, we're going to suppress that truth. doesn't matter that he's done all the signs and miracles and everything that the Messiah was supposed to do. We don't like him. He's from the wrong places. He speaks with authority. He's ruining our financial prospects there at the money changers table in the temple. Whatever the case may be, we're going to reject him. That was in Jesus' day. That's centuries after what we're reading about here in Hosea. Their heart has only turned so far. And God's going to continue to be faithful to his people, to chastise them, to correct them, to bring them to himself. All the way to the end of time. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish, 
2 Peter 3.9. He's long-suffering to us, word. He's long-suffering toward Israel. Verse 11 says, And Ephraim is as a heifer that is taught and loves to tread out the corn. But I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods. This is a reference in many respects to the historical mercy of God toward his people. Right? You, you got this heifer, this oxen, as it were, that's taught and is loved. It gets the easy job. It treads out the corn. It's not pulling anything hard. It's not, right? It turns me to Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Not only that, but God gives specific instruction, and, and maybe this is exactly why he does, but he gives specific instruction about those animals used to tread out the corn. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. Right? In, in, in other words, as he's doing the task that you've set him up to do, though it may not be hard, he gets to eat some of it. He's well provided for. He's taken care of. This is the reference that God is saying. Listen, Israel, Ephraim, you're like a heifer that is taught, that is loved. You get the easy job. You're treading out the corn. You're walking in a circle all day long. But here's, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be yoked. I'm going to pass this yoke upon your neck. You're going to now bear the hard work of plowing and harrowing. You're going to do the hard things that you previously haven't had to do. I've dealt with you in mercy. I've given you that which you didn't deserve. And now I'm going to have to deal with you differently. And what we need to, I, I say differently. What I mean to say, what we need to understand is that the mercy of God is going to be manifest differently to Israel. It's still merciful that he would correct us, that he would bring us back to himself. It's still his mercy that he would interact with us. So he tells them, you're going to be yoked to plow and to toil. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Israel, not only are they commanded that this is how you teach your children, but the reason you teach your children these things is given to us here. Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 15. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not. So this is, this is God mercifully dealing with his people. The easy work, treading out the corn. They're going to live in cities that they didn't have to build. And he says, and you're going to live in houses that are full of good things, right? Fully furnished, guys. Good stuff. Which thou filled not. And wells, which you didn't dig. And vineyards and olive trees, which you didn't plant. When thou, uh, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. right? When you've reaped and when you've eaten the corn that you've tread out. When you've been provided for. When all of this happens, Israel. Here is the warning, and this is the warning to you and I. Verse 12, beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. 
Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shall swear by his name. You shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which were round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you. Now we tend to equate jealousy as something negative and sinful. And for us, it probably is. But this is a righteous desire of God to have provided for his people and to keep them holy, to show mercy to them. This is a jealousy in a positive sense, the way that a parent would be jealous for their children when they see them engage in things that, hey, you shouldn't be doing them. That's the similar jealousy that's being referenced here. It's a positive thing. Lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Here's Israel. They've forgotten God. They've reaped mercifully all the things that he's done for them. His provision, his hand of of correction far more gently than they're about to experience over and over. He's taught them. As we read in the book of Romans, what does it profit to be a Jew then? Well, everything, because, and chiefly because you've received the oracles of God. You have the word of God. They were the ones receiving it. The promises that were made to them to be God's example people, that he was going to be in covenant with them. That through them would all nations be blessed, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So on and so forth. God has dealt with them mercifully. He has provided everything necessary for them, even for their salvation. And they've rejected him. And they rejected him for stuff. In this particular instance, though I think there's further reference there, they've rejected him and elevated other things to the same position or to the position that he should be holding. They fall into idolatry. And God warned them against it in the very beginning when he delivered them from Israel, excuse me, from Egypt. This has been a consistent problem for Israel. So here he is, he's provided for them. They've been like the heifer that gets to tread out the corn, take the easy job. I provided for you all of those things needed. But you were rejecting of me, so now I have to, as he says in verse 10, I desire to chastise you, to correct you, to bring you back to myself. So listen, you take that heifer that's been used to treading out the corn and doing the easy work, and you put it out in the field, and all of a sudden they realize, I had it pretty good over there. When I serve the Lord, when I walk the way that he wanted me to walk, when I did the things that he's commanded me to do, when I reciprocated his love by obedience, because that's what Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Things went well. It wasn't hard. Now, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a burden, that there weren't things that were happening. It was work. Right? There, there were things to be done there. Jesus said, "Take a, my yoke is light and my burden is easy, but there's still a yoke and there's still a burden. But I want you to pay attention to who you're yoked to. You're yoked with Christ. We're not pulling it on our own. And, and, and all I'm saying, and I'm not talking about works unto salvation or anything like that. What I am talking about is walking in obedience. Reaping what we're sowing. And God desirous of Israel, jealous of them, as it were, in a positive sense, looking to deliver them from the hardship and the consequence of their sin that they're inevitably going to get. Because that's the way that it is. That's how he's orchestrated and designed it to be. Calls them to repentance. 
And when they won't listen, he has to change the manifestation of his mercy toward them and correct them. He has to chastise them. In verse 12, he says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Now, this is the call to Israel. This is a, this is a plea to repentance. This is a plea to repentance. And for you and I, no matter where we may stand or the church at large, because we've made the equation, right? But here is Israel, and in many respects, we can take how God is dealing with them, and we would expect that he would deal with us the same. As his people, the church, he would deal with us the same. As individuals, as his people, he would deal with us the same. Now here is Hosea. He's going to go into captivity too. He's a righteous man, but he's going to be subject to some of the consequences of the national sin, just like we may be. But in that consequence, he's going to reap something differently than those who are hard-hearted over here. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Now, when we sow to our... Let's let's look in Lamentations first. Turn with me to Lamentations. Now, Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. So this is is later. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet to Judah looking toward the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, that exile. This, this happens after the fact, but the heart is the same. And in Lamentations, Jeremiah is lamenting, he's mourning the destruction of Jerusalem that he knows is going to come. But in Lamentations 3, verses 31 through 33, for the Lord will not cast off forever. I want you to hear that again. The Lord will not cast off forever. As we get through further in the book of Hosea, we're going to find that God begins to say, to promise to Israel, I'm going to restore you. There is a looking forward to. And the same is revealed here. The Lord will not cast off forever. You and I, we may experience chastisement at the hands of God. If we're his children, we should expect it because he loves us. Hebrews chapter 12 talks all about that. He loves Israel, so he's willing and desirous correct them, bring them back to himself. God will not cast off forever. Verse 32, but though he had caused grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Ultimately, we've looked in the past uh, as God said, listen, if you reject me, if you begin to worship those other gods, you'll go in and you'll be captive. You will be removed from the land. He said, but when your heart turns back toward me, you'll be restored. And he goes on in verse 33, and he says, For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. God is long-suffering. He's merciful. In other words, he only applies what has to be applied to correct us, and not more. You and I, we may correct our children, as we read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. We may correct them, and we may do so more harshly than is necessary. We are sinful people. And we're going to make mistakes. Sometimes we have a struggle in understanding just how much consequence there should be deserved in a particular circumstance. 
kids, that's why you look at your parents and you say, listen, you are harder on us than you are on our younger siblings. Why? Because your parents have learned from the Lord. That's why. It isn't that their heart has changed. It isn't that, but we've learned the mistakes that we've made in the past. So it looks different. God is perfect. He's not making the mistakes. He says, listen, I am going to afflict you and I'm not going to do it willingly, but I am going to do it because I love you. He's only going to do that which is necessary. And he's not going to grieve the children of men. So when I talk about we participate in our sanctification, that's part of what I'm talking about, right? That when we're resistant to it, when God is pointing and shining the light into our lives and saying, listen, this is an area where we're going to start changing the way you think about and understand. I want you to be more like Jesus here tomorrow than you are right now. When we're resistant to that correction of God, he has to apply more force. He has to come at it harder than he did before. We can participate in our sanctification. We can say, yes, Lord, that is something that I need. And we can begin to participate with him to change the way we think about it, to correct our thinking. What does the word of God say about it? And to begin to put in some study. When we're soft and moldable, it takes less effort. It takes less force to correct us. So God only uses as much correction as necessary. He tells the nation of Israel, Till up the fallow ground. Now, fallow in this case, it simply means what is untilled but could be tilled. That's literally what it means. That's what the fallow ground in this reference means. There are things that we chose not to plant, there are things that we chose not to engage in. There are areas of our lives where we have withheld something from the Lord, and He's saying, Listen, it's time to get it all out on the table. I've made this statement in the past, I'm going to make it again, that in God's mercy, he didn't save me and immediately say, we're going to change every single thing in you that doesn't reflect me. Because I don't think any of us could have handled that. But God in his mercy towards us says, listen, we're going to change these areas. We're going to have to come back to these areas. He says, it's time to break up the fallow ground. It's time to till those areas that we've left untilled. We're going to get to those things. We're going to deal with the hard or the unbelieving heart that the nation of Israel has here. And he says this, he says, so, or in other words, what it, what it means is to plant. Plant to yourselves in righteousness. Now, there's a couple of things here. Sowing requires trust in God, it requires faith. Right? We, we put the seed in the ground, we trust that the processes that God has made are going to yield fruit. We have to put it in the ground. We trust. And when we are talking about sowing in our life, it, we're doing those things, trusting that God is going to bring about fruit within us, whether it's sanctification and molding to the image of Christ. We talked about it this morning as we engage in leadership in our communities or in civil government or whatever those venues, those spheres of influence that we talked about. We're sowing and we may reap from those things, sometimes some hardship. We may reap some persecution or mock. Uh, those aren't pleasant things, but nonetheless, they're fruits. He says to you and I to sow that requires of you and I faith in God. 
And we don't sow for our own recognition. I'm not sowing so that as everybody drives by, they can see how green and lush my crops are. And look at all the fruit that Sam has. Or I'm not sowing selfishly so that I might just reap that harvest. That's what Israel has done. They've sown to these idols. And he, God says, even uh, in, I think it's Hosea chapter 2. I think we looked at it last week again, just to refresh our memories. But listen, you offer all of these things, all this corn, this, the harvest that I'm providing you to these idols. So I'm going to remove the corn. We don't do it for our own recognition. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 5 through 8. When we talk about sowing, this is a parallel illustration of the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Now, there's this controversy between people that are like, well, I'm in the camp of Apollos, or I'm in the camp of Paul, or I'm camp of Cephas. You know, we, we follow Peter, we follow Paul, we follow Apollos. And Paul's addressing that here. He's saying, who is Paul? Who's Apollos? Why are we even talking about us? Because that's not the point. He says, those are simply the ministers of the truth to you. They're the ones that brought the message to you. And he goes on, he says, verse 6, I have planted, Apollos watered. There were places where Paul would go and share the truth, Paulus would come behind, and the people would be encouraged in their faith. And there's other times, he says, where it may have been the other way. But at the end of verse 6, he says, but God gave the encouragement. Paul nor Apollos, neither one of them are looking for the recognition or the fruit of what is happening there because they know that it's God's harvest. And they both ultimately understand that they're simply messengers and God is the one doing the sowing and the reaping. They are both trusting in Him wholly and completely. Verse 7, So then, neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. It's for his glory. It's for his honor. Now, he that plants and he that waters are one. We're on the same team. We're about the Lord's business. We're engaged in the same process. Don't cause needless division because we're both trying to share the gospel. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Paulus will receive the, the rewards accompanying his endeavors for the Lord, and Paul will receive his, and you will receive yours, and I'll receive mine. They might all be different. We might all have different roles. We are one body, fitly joined together, specifically and sovereignly placed where we need to be. We're going to sow in faith. And he says, you're going to sow to yourselves. In other words, it doesn't matter what everyone else is doing. For Hosea, as he goes into captivity in Assyria, he's going to continue to sow to the Lord. He's going to continue to trust God. Even if everyone else in the country is not, even if everyone else is there cursing God because he's allowed them to go into captivity, Hosea is going to remain faithful. He's going to sow to himself. And we're going to continue in that same thing. We're going to take the personal responsibility for what we are sowing. He also says that not only are we sowing and that it's time to break up that fallow ground. It's time to 
uh, till up those things and root out all of the parts that need to be addressed. He says, we're going to reap in mercy. In Isaiah 61, if you'll turn there with me, Isaiah 61, I want to read verses 1 through 4. Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them, uh, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old waste, and they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. In other words, here's the thing. We are going to reap, as we seek the Lord, what we don't deserve. That's what mercy is. In Galatians chapter 6, it tells us that God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If he reaps of the flesh, he's going to reap destruction. If he sows of the flesh, he's going to reap destruction. But if he sows of the spirit, he's going to reap life everlasting. When God deals with you and I in mercy, what we sow does not equate directly to what we reap. Now, we can't just be sowing sinfulness and expect to reap all the blessing. God's not mocked. But here's what we can expect. That just as Jose is going into a hard time, as he sows to himself, as he continues to serve the Lord, he's going to receive something like beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. He's going to reap those things that are dealing with him mercifully. He's going to reap those things when he sows in faith, when he trusts the Lord when he continues in them. And it doesn't matter the circumstance that Hosea finds himself in, there it is. And what did we say at the very beginning, that if God's people Israel are an example, and we base that on what the Bible says, that all those things that are written in the past are an example, that we would expect that God would deal with us the same way he dealt with his people. So when we sow to ourselves, when we're surrounded by those who are unwilling to acknowledge Scripture, when they want to suppress truth, when they want to syncretize and mix all kinds of idolatry and false religion in with Christianity, or reject it completely and outright, when we continue to sow in faith, when we continue to pursue God and His truth, and let that be our standard of truth and righteousness, His Word, we would expect to reap in mercy. And even though as a result of all that, we might find ourselves in hardship, we might find ourselves at odds with even friends and family. That the fruit and what we reap as a result of that is God's blessing. His mercy. In Psalm 126, we're, clo we're going to close with this. We're not going to close with this. We've got one more place to go after this. Psalm 126. 
Psalm 126. Now, this is an unascribed psalm. We don't know exactly who wrote it. But it's very clear what's being written about. He says, when the Lord, in verse 1, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. So here we have the nation of Israel. They're in captivity, whether Assyria or Babylon. And we understand from history, there's, there's some time, and even Scripture reveals there's some time between those. But ultimately, God returns their captivity. They're brought back to the land. And we know that happened. We can see it in history. We Not only that, but we see it in Scripture. Jesus was Jew in Israel. They, they were there. Now, is there a future restoration yet to come? Potentially, but ultimately we see those things fulfilled. And he says, we're like them that dream. So here is God correcting us, chastening us, and when we actually receive what happens there, it's like a dream. It's better than we could have imagined. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord has done great things for them. God's not going to share his glory, as I said earlier, nor is his glory going to be diminished by the unfaithfulness of Israel. As he is remaining faithful to them and ultimately corrects and brings them back to himself and then delivers them out of bondage, what do the nations again recognize? That he is with his people, that he is their God, and that he is the God. The conclusion we find in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. Whereof we are glad, we rejoice, we praise him as a result. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing with him his sheaves. In other words, we're out there, we're, we're sowing into ourselves, we're continuing to trust the Lord no matter where we find ourselves. If we as a country end up under God's corrective hand, maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. I'm not convinced that we read about America in Scripture in the end times other than those that would assemble themselves against God. But if that does happen, and we as a result of being part of this country reaps some of the national consequence. What does it say? He that goes forth and weeps, we're, we're mourning for the country, we're mourning for the judgment that we may be facing or that we are in. We bear precious seed, we bring it with us, we continue to sow it, we trust God and we endeavor to serve Him even in the midst of hardship. We've seen this very thing in other countries where those believe, uh, Richard Wurmbrand is a great example. Here it is, it's illegal to proselytize. I can't tell people about Jesus Christ. But what does he do? He continues to take the precious seed of the word of God, even hiding it, taking the cover off, putting it inside another book, and passing it out to the soldiers by the very authority, and in fact, ultimately did take and make him a prisoner. And he rejoiced. Was it hard? Yes. But he was glad through all of it. And so here are we. We may not find ourselves in such dire circumstances. But we do find ourselves at odds. We do find ourselves surrounded by those things that are contrary to and even antagonistic and, and, and desirous to tear down the things of God. What do we continue to sow? We continue to sow truth. We continue to sow faithfulness. 
to the Lord. Not for our own glory, but so that he might be honored. And if it happens that you and I would receive correction, that we might find ourselves in a place similar to that of Israel. We understand that just as God was desirous to chasten Israel, to bring them back to himself, we need to understand his correction as the blessing and the mercy that it is. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he says, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Just pause there for a moment. We have the whole witness of Scripture. We have the witness of God's dealing with his people Israel. His faithfulness over generations, over all of history, up to this point. So that you and I can say, I can safely trust in the Lord. He's proven himself faithful. Therefore, the result, the action that would follow would be that we would put off those things that beset us or that weigh us down. So that we might faithfully press forward, so that we might run with patience the race that is before us. That sin, those other things, that's the fallow ground that is tillable but untilled. Those are the things that we put off. And what do we do? He says, we look unto Jesus, the author or the beginner, the initiator, and the finisher, the, the end goal. The end goal is a terrible way to say it. The fulfillment of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we're discouraged, when we find ourselves surrounded by hardship, and we feel as if, woe is me because all of this stuff is going south, it says, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before Jesus, that he might be the redeemer of mankind. What did he do? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he was made sin. And as sin, he became the object of all of God's wrath for sin so that we might be made his righteousness. So that we might be covered and clothed and declared to be his righteousness. He gave everything so that we might have life. We look into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, because there are times when it is discouraging. There are times when it is hard. There are times when we may face the corrective hand of God and we think to ourselves, woe is me. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Not only does God desire to see us redeemed and made every provision necessary in his son, Jesus Christ, not only does he continue with you and I, his people, to correct us and mold us into the image of, of his son, using everything for our good that we, he might do so, Romans 8, 28 and 29. But he sustains us. He extends to us grace 
When we face hardship, he says, listen, you can come directly to the throne room of grace and receive mercy in time of need. His compassion fails not. His mercies are new every morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to be in your word. We rejoice, Lord, at the reminder and the truth that you are faithful. That as we see you deal with your people Israel in the past, Lord, we can expect you to deal with us the same in love and in mercy and correction as a result of your love for us. Lord, may we not be like Israel with hard hearts, but may we be receptive to the correction that you extend towards us. Lord, may we be yielded to the sanctification, the breaking up of our hard hearts. And as Lord, your spirit and as your word shine into the darkness that we may have within us, whether it's idolatry or things that we've elevated to an inappropriate location, or just those things, Lord, that you have yet to confront, may we be yielded to your merciful hand. We praise you that you don't leave us where you found us. Father, we praise you for the opportunity that we have. And that even though this morning we may not sing in worship, we have the opportunity, Lord, to worship in everything that we do. That we might lay our lives down as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service, which is the appropriate response for all that you've done. God, help us to be your servants. Help us to worship you in word and in deed. In Jesus' name. Amen.